My second coffee, you didn't comment on that. I'm on mine as well. That's like a, not a coffee, that's like a sugary iced coffee drink. Yes, but it also says 1.5 times the caffeine that's in a 250ml cup of instant coffee. It's weird that it like says that to promote the drink. Well, that's why you buy an iced coffee. I know, but like you shouldn't have that much caffeine. (laughs) Why? I'll be like, tweak. (laughs) Did you know that he and Craig stay together? He and Craig stay together. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. They're like lovers now. They're just like boyfriends. But then there's like issues in their relationship and stuff. It's really cool. And they just like, because they break up in the episode and then the next time they're seen together, they're calling each other babe. And it's just accepted that they're actually in a relationship now. Anyway, we should probably start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I am joined by my co-host Damien Heath. Damien... Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Like, what are you doing when you aren't visiting funerals? Uh, well, I like to consider myself quite the radical, and I really only tackle the big issues. (laughs) Like what? Well, you know, war, injustice, bigotry. But I fight them in my own personal way, through this podcast. Well, this month we're exploring Hal Ashby's 1971 comedy drama, Harold and Maud. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. That he may bless and deliver all souls of the faithful departed, bring them to the bliss of heaven and eternal peace. O Lord, grant him forgiveness of all his sins. By the help of your grace, you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Something new each day. After all, we're given life to find it out. <laughs> it doesn't last forever. Oh, it's all right. It's organic. Harold? Mort? Did I tell you I'll be 80 on Saturday? This is definitely a new experience for me. And the smell. Mm. All around us, living thing. What sense in borders and nations and patriotism? Aim above morality. Take a chance. Get hurt even. But play as well as you can. Hmm. I haven't lived. I've died a few times. Oh, Harold. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. Can't let the world judge you too much. Do you have any friends? Maybe one. Would you care to talk about this, friend? No. Commingling with sagging breasts. Absolutely no. Now, are you ready, Harold? Should women run for president of the United States? Well, I don't see why not. Absolutely yes. Is it difficult for you to accept criticism? Oh, no. Do you believe in capital punishment for murder? Absolutely yes. War is not all black. Why, hell. World War II gave us the ballpoint pen. That's common knowledge. Where's my, where's my old lady? I'll be gone by midnight. What? Should we have a song? I don't, I don't play. Oh, come on. Harold and Maud began its life as a school project. 28-year-old UCLA film student Colin Higgins wrote it as a 20-minute short for his master's thesis. 
a gay man living amid the tumult of the counterculture movement in Los Angeles, Higgins' screenplay captured the sense of change in the air. The oppression of the 50s, horrors of Vietnam, and Kent State shootings had instilled in the younger generation a mistrust of organised authority. They turned instead to New Age philosophy, environmentalism, and hallucinogens that promoted self-actualization. Howard and Maud would celebrate this newfound social liberalism, but to ensure viewers were not let off the hook, Higgins framed his story around a taboo, a romance between an 18-year-old boy and a 79-year-old woman. Higgins sought feedback from peers, who encouraged him to expand it into a feature-length film. To support himself, Higgins had taken a job as a pool cleaner and chauffeur for an affluent family. He was hired by Mildred Lewis and became acquainted with her daughter Susan, whom he drove to and from school as part of his duties. On these trips, he would share ideas about the project with Susan, who recounted it to her mother. Colin handed a copy of the script to Mildred, who thought it was good enough to be made into a studio film. She brought it to her husband, film producer Edward Lewis. Edward respected his wife's judgement. After all, it had been Mildred who'd turned him onto his greatest success, Spartacus, ten years earlier. Lewis sent the script to Peter Bard, the vice president of production at Paramount, who passed it on to his boss, Robert Evans. The timing couldn't have been better. For a few years, Hollywood had been cashing in on the social awakening of the youth market, with films like The Graduate and Easy Rider returning a healthy profit. With its trendy politics and unconventional subject matter, Harold and Maud was the type of project studios were gambling on. Seemingly overnight and in true Hollywood fashion, Higgins went from pool cleaner to Hollywood screenwriter, selling Harold and Maud for 100000 with another 100000 to follow if the film returned a profit. Despite the windfall, Higgins was apprehensive. He worried that Paramount would sand down the provocative elements of his screenplay, he had a clause written into the contract that he would be considered for director after shooting a few test scenes, which he did at Columbia Studios with a $7,500 budget. Despite his best efforts, the test only confirmed Higgins' inexperience. The studio needed a director. That was when Bard suggested Hal Ashby. Ashby began his career as an assistant editor, working with masters like William Wyler and George Stevens. With the help of good friend Norman Jewison, he slowly moved up the ranks to editor, and in 1967 won an Oscar for his work on Jewison's In the Heat of the Night. Three years later, he directed his first feature, The Landlord, a satire that critiqued racial tensions in America. The film came and went, though today it is still considered a lost gem of the American New Wave. Ashby signed on in September 1970, with reservations existing on both sides. Ashby wasn't sure he could blend his talents with Higgins' quirky material, and Paramount worried that Ashby's chronic pot-smoking made him a risky investment. After failing to convince Paramount to let Higgins direct, Ashby gave the first-time writer a producer credit to strengthen his influence over production. Ashby fought to shoot the film in San Francisco, mostly because it would impede studio interference. The seven-week shoot would begin on January 4, 1971, with a $1.3 million budget. The production would ultimately last 13 weeks and come in at 1.6 million. Veteran stage actress Ruth Gordon was first approached at a restaurant by producer Robert Evans, who knew the lively, outspoken actress from her work in Rosemary's Baby. The 74-year-old Oscar winner read the script and was elated. Nobody could play it but me, she said. It's a terrific part. Big acting scenes, deep and moving, then funny, and I sing a song and dance. Talk about vitality. It leaps off the page. And she's 80. Ashby preferred Edith Evans and met with an array of other actresses, including Gordon, before offering her the part. For Harold, Ashby auditioned 21-year-old Bud Court, an actor who'd worked with Robert Altman on two recent films. After screen testing with Gordon, Court beat out a number of other actors, including Richard Dreyfuss. Ashby always knew Harold and Maud would have a strong musical element. He originally wanted Elton John to write the music and possibly star as Harold but the budding musician had just finished writing songs for another movie and wasn't interested. He did, however, suggest another artist whose folk-pop style seemed to align with the film's esoteric themes, 23-year-old prodigy Cat Stevens. Stevens liked the script, but wasn't sure his music was a good fit. He met with Ashby, who set a piece of film to one of Stevens' songs. Stevens took the bait and agreed to license his music. Throughout filming, Ashby listened to Stevens' Mona Bone Jacob and Tea for the Tiller Man for inspiration. 
The musician wrote two original songs for the film, If You Wanna Sing Out, Sing Out and Don't Be Shy. So sure was Ashby of his choice that he filmed Maud singing one of Stephen's songs before negotiations with the musician were finalised. Harold and Maud was a difficult shoot, thwarted by location mishaps, crummy weather and scheduling conflicts. To add to his troubles, Ruth Gordon, it turned out, couldn't drive, and a stunt double was enlisted to create these scenes. Court struggled to build a rapport with Gordon, whose no-nonsense professional demeanour made her difficult to access. He would later say of his co-star, She's like a 15-year-old teeny bopper. She jukes around and she's got more energy than anybody I know, including me. Court persisted and the relationship improved over time. Court flew down from London to surprise Gordon when she was featured on an episode of This Is Your Life. Now included on this bracelet is a charm for your new motion picture, uh, Harold and Maud. Your co-star in Harold and Maud flew all the way to Hollywood from London to be with you. Here is Bud Court. Not long after, Gordon would call court when his father passed away from multiple sclerosis. Suddenly we were the characters we had played, court would recall, adding, it was one of the most important friendships I've ever had. More challenging was court's working relationship with Vivian Pickles, the theatre trained actress who played his snobbish puritanical mother. Pickles did not care for court's improvisational style, and the two would not make amends until years after the film's release. More delays ensued when Bill Lucking, the actor hired to play the street cop who pulls Maud over after she and Harold steal a potted tree, suffered a terrible motorcycle accident during a take, which left him with several fractured bones. The actor was bedridden for months. Once again, Ashby was forced to think on the fly. He would return to the location later and shoot the scenes with Tom Skerritt. Despite this, the Harold and Maud set was a happy one. At the end of each day, the crew would retire to a screening room and watch the film's dailies. In what seems a perfect H&M anecdote, pot smokers took their positions up the front, the squares made up the middle, with the drinkers taking up the rear. In Higgins' first draft, the story is bookended by two hangings. The first is faked by Harold as a means of tormenting his mother, but the second is real, a final solution to Harold's inconsolable grief. Higgins eventually went with the more life-affirming ending. Like Higgins before him, Ashby considered killing Harold in the final scene, but eventually sided with the writer. Harold is permitted to live, playing his banjo with a skip in his step as the final credits roll. The first cut of the film came in at three hours. After viewing it, producer Charles Mulverhill said, I remember looking at it and thinking that my career had begun and ended, because it was just awful. It was long and tedious. You wanted to strangle Maud. If she opened up and laid out one more pontification, you just wanted to slug her. Harangued by Bard and Evans, who continually attempted to undermine his control over the film, Ashby agonised for many months over the edit. Finally, at the end of 1971, a series of preview screenings were held. The audience reactions were euphoric. It even received a standing ovation. On December 20th, 1971, with 90 minutes trimmed off, Harold and Maud premiered at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre in Midtown Manhattan. After the film's initial failure, belated success, and elevation to cult status, a fan would write Ruth Gordon a letter. The writer struggled to express his feelings about why Harold and Maud meant so much to him. I think about it a lot, Gordon later reflected, and I've finally come to the conclusion that it's because, to get through life, you have to have somebody to tell it to. Damien, D-Man the Deedster, I should just say, happy, happy birthday again. Did you have a nice night last night? Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes, I did have a nice night. Closing in quickly on 40. So, you know, only a couple of years left before that milestone. Mm, you're going to have to give up the podcast. I don't really think it's appropriate. It's not really an old man's medium. No, it's not. I'll have to find another co-host. <laughs> yeah, in your youth for the, for the four years you've got left. Oh, I'm ever young, Damien. That's what you think. Tell me about you and Harold and Maud. I believe you showed me Harold and Maud for the first time. I don't think I'd ever seen it before I met you because you loved the film. It's very much in keeping with your sensibilities as well. So this is a film that I don't think anyone would be surprised if they know you to know that you love it so much. Personally, I think that this is your kind of coming-of-age revolutionist film. 
and I feel like mine is The Graduate, and there's so many comparisons between the two movies, but there's also so many differences between the two movies, but they are kind of the examples of that genre or that story that have defined our film fandom. I I think that's really true. There are definitely parallels. I love The Graduate. And I love Harold and Maud. (laughs) But this one's a little closer to me and The Graduate's a little closer to you. Mm. And what's funny is that they almost feel British in a way while feeling remarkably American. Definitely. They don't have a really kind of vivid American style. (laughs) It's a weird thing to say, but they are far less overtly American in their revolutionism than something like Easy Rider which is so American. Um, And there's a class to these movies, to the dialogue that's used in these movies. It's it's very much not, you know, a blue-collar world that these characters are living in, apart from, obviously, Maud is one of those people that lives in that world. But it's almost something that Harold yearns for as well. It's interesting. I was thinking about it last night that, and I think Graduate's sort of similar. You know, the 70s had a very distinct colloquial language you know words like groovy and hip and stuff like that this movie doesn't have any of that and neither does the graduate no they don't yeah and that 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 means that they don't become part of what the parody of that time became either so that works ultimately to their benefit especially in terms of reassessing them and making them a little bit timeless do you remember how i came upon harold and Moore? do you remember the story no so i was working in uh in the video store and uh, listeners, just here's a little bit of information for you. Damien and I met in a video store. We both worked there. Damien was actually my manager and um, he used his position of authority to seduce me. <laughs> that started a seven-year Stockholm Syndrome type relationship. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you think of me so highly. <laughs> so I was working in the video store and Peter Gers came in. Peter Gers is like a Adelaide film critic. Radio personality. Yeah, he's very much interested in the arts and in culture. But anyway, he came in and of course everyone in the store, I guess because my boss said, oh, it's Peter Gers and everyone was making a big deal of him. Anyway, I ended up serving him and he looked at me and he was like, you look exactly like Harold from my favourite movie, Harold and Maud." And I was like, oh, I don't know that movie. I've never heard of that movie. Okay, sure. So anyway, I obviously went out and rented it. Now, when I look back at it, I actually think it was a pretty cruel thing to say to a 21-year-old boy. (laughs) At the time, I was so so affected by the movie that I forgot to be insulted. (laughs) I forgot my vanity. But the movie was so important to me at that age because I hadn't come out yet. And... um, The film just seemed to be this big poster that said, it's okay. It's okay to be you. And not many films at that time were propagating that message. Not many films from the noughties were like endorsements of nonconformity. In fact, they were all posters for conformity. There were like frat boy comedies and pirates and hobbits. I mean, either films meant nothing and were pure fantasy, or if they did mean something, they were focusing on family values and conventional attitudes to life. So it had a huge, huge effect on me, Harold and Maud. It's the kind of movie that for every person you show it to, another person's just going to be so put off by it. They'll be put off by the subject matter, the the colouring, the language. So when you love a movie that so many other people don't love, you love it that little bit more. I think also that it's true that they were making these kinds of movies in the late 60s, the very late 60s and Throughout the 70s, they were making these movies that were personal, but universal, anti, almost anti-government, definitely anti-war. And the ones that got it right are still relevant to people today who are going through certain things. Certainly, I mean, looking at this movie in this current climate with everything happening with Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd, it takes on another meaning. You can look back at certain examples of cinema and say, even though this movie is 50 years old, it is still as relevant today as it was then. Yeah, absolutely. The birds. Wow. Oh, I love them so much. They're the only wildlife I get to see anymore. Ah, me, free as a bird. You know, at one time I used to break into pet shops to liberate the canaries, but I decided that was an idea way before its time. Zoos are full 
prisons are overflowing. Oh, my. How the world still dearly loves a cage. And this movie came out at a time when we were, certainly America, but all around the world, these kinds of issues were being discussed. So this was 1971. In 1968, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Then we had the Tet Offensive. The Washington DC March uh, had happened in 69, so that was half a million protesters. Then Kent State shootings happened in 1970. The Gay Liberation Front was founded around this time. The women's movement was gaining a lot of traction. The movie's socially aware of, of the world at the time that it was being made. I think in its way, all of Hal Ashby's 70s movies are a response to all of those things. I mean, the film is very, it's very anti-war, anti-establishment, anti-authoritarianism, anti-patriotism, anti-captivity. And it's kind of critical of anyone who is too neatly integrated into the system or who's too conventional. Harold's mum, Uncle Vern, the cop, the psychiatrist, the priest, they're pretty much our other characters. Most of them are in uniforms. I mean, arguably, even his mum is in some kind of uniform in every shot. It almost seems to be saying that these people's adherence to social norms strip them of their humanity and make them these robotic-sounding people. Well, they also become caricatures of those particular people, of those, those archetypes, especially, I think, the military uncle, but really, those characters are just there for Harold and Maud to bounce off and to the message to bounce off as well. You say it's a comedy and it is a farce and there's definitely satirical elements to it. But the relationship between Harold and Maud feels very earnest. I don't think the film is a farce at all. I think that those smaller characters who represent just kind of these blown out of proportion archetypes are presented as a farce purely to get the message of the main characters across. What happens between Harold and Maud is not comedy and not farce. It is, it is romance and it is life and it is just... I mean, that's the dramatic element of this story and that's why it works so well. It is weighted. If this was purely a farce, it would not be a film that we remember today. Do you think there's a, a bit of a teacher-student dynamic creeping into their relationship? Yeah, definitely. But I think that's the I think that's not just the case in this movie. I think that's the case in any relationship, probably particularly relationships between people who, where there is a age difference, but I think even relationships where people are of the same age, there is a teacher-student relationship or teacher-student dynamic. People don't necessarily share the same ideologies, they don't necessarily share the same interests, so you can learn from anybody. It just so happens that to tell this story about life and death, you know, to tell that, it needs to tell it from a perspective of somebody who's older and a perspective of somebody who's younger. And I think that the film, therefore, speaks to people who were feeling a lot of these feelings, who were the youth in America at the time. They were the people that were getting conscripted to go to war, who were feeling hopelessness about their future. So, you know, they were the generation beyond the greatest generation. They had to make their own mark, but they had these expectations against them that they would follow in their, their parents' and their grandparents' footsteps, you know, the heroes of World War Two, and yet they were thrust into a war that there were no, not going to be any heroes from. I mean, they were put in a position that they were never going to come out of it looking good. I mean, there's so much to talk about when we talk about the historical context of Harold and Maud, and obviously that it was made during the Vietnam War and in the middle of America's involvement in the Vietnam War is obviously one of those important factors. The sexual revolution as well. Look, obviously, the scene where Harold feigns this intense interest in the bloodletting of another human being when his mother decides to send him into the military is, again, that's this example of, you know, somebody who's young who opposes the war who's saying, well, is this how I'm supposed to feel about it? He's being ridiculous so that he doesn't have to go and serve in the military. Conscription, as I said, was used as a tool at this time, as it had been several times before, to get young men into the military. And for those who were opposed to the war or who didn't wish to serve, this was a massive psychological burden. I mean, Harold has to use these kind of outlandish tactics so that his uncle decides, oh, Harold's not going to be right to send to put into the military. Will they really teach me to shoot? Sure they will. A variety of weapons. To use a bayonet? Yes! 
How about hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat? Yes. Just strangle someone, choke him, what? squeeze out his life in your own back. I, I think you're getting carried away, uh, Harold. How about to uh, slit his throat? Well, I don't know about I like that. that. You can see the blood squirt out. Well, how about souvenirs? Souvenirs? Of your kill. Eyes, ears, nose, scalp, privates, Harold. I believe that Harold suicides in this movie. They're kind of akin to the actions of radical protesters throughout the 60s and throughout the 70s. I mean, in the 1960s, there were nine self-immolations or examples of people setting themselves on fire in the United States by objectors to American involvement in the Vietnam War. So that Harold, Harold self-immolates during one scene in, Har in Harold and Maud is not explicitly portrayed as an objection to the war. However, it is portrayed in the film as an objection to his mother's persistence that he accept these social norms, and it ties to these political objections that were happening at the time. Oh, whether you like it or not, when you see that image of Harold set alight, you think of the famous image of the monk, even if you only think of it unconsciously. And I mean, these things are happening all around the world at the time. They were happening in Vietnam especially, but throughout Tibet they've happened throughout history. In America they were happening in just about American involvement in the war. Self-immolations have been happening since the 1930s in modern political history, and they're still happening today. I was going to ask you, because uh, I think your answer is the same as mine, what is your favourite moment or scene or sequence in the film? I don't know if mine is the same as yours. My favourite quote in the movie, I have two of them. The first one is when Harold asks her what she was fighting for when she was politically active and she says, Oh, big issue. Liberty, rights, justice. Kings died, kingdoms fell. I don't regret the kingdoms. What sense in borders and nations and patriotism? But I miss the kings. And my other favourite quote, and it's much deeper than just the quote, is when Harold and Maud are watching the sunset over the ocean and a seagull flies across it, and she says, Dreyfus once wrote from Devil's Island that he would see the most glorious birds. Many years later in Brittany, he realised they had only been seagulls. Neither of those are what I would have guessed. Just quickly on that last one, how do you read that scene and that quote? That comes after Harold has just seen the imprint on the inside of her wrist. Yeah, she's seen, he's seen her tattoo from the, the Nazi concentration camps. That's right. And I think Dreyfus was persecuted. Yeah, he was a Jewish-French military officer who was falsely convicted of treason in 1894, so well before the war and he was sentenced to life imprisonment at Devil's Island which at its worst had a death rate of 75% due to the notoriously harsh treatment of its detainees but in 1906 he was exonerated and he was reinstated to the French army so obviously just prior to relating that story and saying that they will always be glorious birds Harold seen that tattoo and seagulls are actually a universal symbol of freedom so Maud tells this story as a way to kind of put Harold's mind at ease about what he has just seen, even though in the movie you don't see Maud acknowledge that Harold has seen her tattoo. But she, she says this story as a way to kind of put his mind at ease and say that she is essentially free from that pain of the past and that she remained free throughout. You watch the film and you don't know who Dreyfus is and you don't know his history and you don't know that her referencing him is a way of highlighting the perennial nature of discrimination and whether or not it happened in the 40s in a concentration camp or, you know, a hundred or a thousand years before that in some other place against some other race or ethnicity, that um, it's just something that perennially exists in the world. The scene to me, I think, is beautiful because... We don't know Maud's history, really. We only get kind of snatches of it. But obviously, once we see that tattoo, we know that she has seen and experienced horrors. And the way that it's shot, and you see the birds and you hear them, you hear that story, and you think, oh, they really are beautiful. And of course, we all see seagulls every day. We walk past them. We don't notice them. We don't think of them. 
Especially when they are a, a symbol of freedom. I mean, especially when they're flying across the sunset like that, so free and so, I guess, is carefree when the person viewing that is in a situation in which they are locked up and oppressed. And we often use our baggage to excuse the fact that we miss simple, beautiful things in the world. So I guess for a woman of her age and with her experience to sit there and just recognise them and then we get a moment with them in the film, it's just incredibly touching that there's this person that that doesn't miss any of these little tiny miracles that happen every day in nature. I think that's one example of what you're going to probably say is your favourite scene. Yeah, so my favourite scene is when um, they're discussing what they would like to change into once they die. And she says she'd like to change into a sunflower because they're tall and simple. Like you, Damien, very tall and simple. Um, who did you marry, Luke? He's obsessed with sunflowers. <laughs> He's he is very tall and simple. <laughs> But Harold says that he'd like to come back as a daisy and we get this shot of hundreds of daisies and she asks why he wants to come back as a daisy and he says because they're all alike. And she points out that... Oh, but they're not. Look, see, some are smaller, some are fatter, some grow to the left, some to the right, some even have lost some petals, all kinds of observable differences. You see, Harold... I feel that much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this, yet allow themselves to be treated as that. Then we get a shot of a section of Holy Cross Cemetery in Coma. And it looks like a military graveyard. It looks like something like Arlington Cemetery. And suddenly the daisies are tombstones that is really powerful because if we get a photograph of Arlington Cemetery and we see all of these graves and they all look alike, it just looks like a statistic, really, like a visual statistic. Oh, that many people died at war. How awful. But you don't really think beyond the surface of that thought. Oh, lots of people died for this. But coming off of that scene, when we realise that, okay, yeah, you know, we all are people, we're all maybe roughly the same height and have roughly the same ideas, but we're all incredibly different and nuanced and individuals. And then you apply that to a photograph of a cemetery and you realise how many individuals with different wants and passions and ideas and thoughts have all kind of been boxed into this statistic. Putting those two thoughts together makes it incredibly sad to look at that graveyard. And, I mean, that is the single most striking edit of the movie as well. I mean, that's like psycho drain to eyeball kind of stuff, isn't it? I mean, that is just a superb edit by somebody who was pretty early in his film career, but he was well advanced in his editing career. So he was able to, I guess, put his knowledge of editing Hal Ashby at that time into making this shot that was so meaningful. It is the best edit in the film, I think. I just want to mention quickly the music of Cat Stevens, because it's such an essential part of Harold and Maud. This is another thing that's reminiscent to me of The Graduate, and particularly the use of Simon and Garfunkel's music in that film. Both of them are so suited not only to the visuals of the movie, and uh, apparently Hal Ashby edited a lot of Harold and Maud to the idea that he would be using Cat Stevens' music, and Cat Stevens almost pulled out of the project because he didn't have time to record the songs until they renegotiated and said he could use some of the existing songs and Cat Stevens would record a couple of new ones for him. But also it, to the narrative and to the political statements that both films make. Cat Stevens himself was a self-described outcast in his younger years. He was the artistic kid who was beaten up at school. And in 1969, he became sick with tuberculosis. And after spending time in hospital and at home recuperating for about a year, he changed his outlook on life. And he got out of his original record deal and began creating this kind of existentialist folk music that he eventually became known for and which is featured on the film's soundtrack. Stephen's lyrical content ties in nicely with the philosophy of Harold and Morden and elevates it in a way. Stevens had his own followers who were firmly entrenched in both political op opposition to the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution. 
no, sorry, not opposition to the sexual revolution. Uh, obviously, they agreed with the sexual revolution. The main theme to the movie is definitely if you want to sing out, sing out. And that film has, uh, sorry, that song has such a simple, elegant message of being different, which is really beautiful. I love that song. It almost plays like a ABC play school type song in how simple it is. I mean, melodically, it has an underlying joy and, and bittersweet quality to it. And like each verse has a, an affirmation because there's a million things to be, there's a million ways to go, and it just says you know that there are. And it's just a really kind of elegant, understated way of saying what it's about. Tell me, Harold, how many of these suicides have you performed? An accurate number would be difficult to gauge. Well, just give me a rough estimate. A rough estimate? Let's say... Fifteen. Fifteen? That's a rough estimate. Were they all done for your mother's benefit? No, no. I would not say benefit. What do you think is wrong with Harold? I think he's kind of the epitome of all of our anxieties about the world. And I think that while he is obsessed with death, and a lot of critics made a complaint about how he was so obsessed with death, I think he is also reverent about it. He goes to these funerals and he pays his condolences and he feels sorrow for those at the funerals that he attends. And while some people would say he's, as we've discussed, he's yearning for the love and acceptance of his mother, she's so entirely self-involved. And one of the great scenes is when she's answering his dating application. And my favourite question in that is when the question is asked about whether he enjoyed his childhood did you enjoy life when you were a child? Oh, yes, you were a wonderful baby, Harold. And she says it entirely about her own experiences, and she doesn't see him. Then we get that scene where he breaks down crying to Maud. Are those faked suicides because he is trying to recreate a moment that elicited a real reaction from his mother? Or does he want her to have a different reaction? Because he almost certainly doesn't want her to continue to be indifferent or worse to how I can't take any more of this. Harold is kind of this representation of that unseen generation, that idea that people had to be as successful as their parents were and their, gener uh, their grandparents were, the post-war generation, the greatest generation. And finally with Maud, he is seen. And he is, he is a simple person with simple needs, as most people are. And he doesn't see her just physically, although she does, because her gaze pierces him at the funerals they both attend through the crowd, and then she's psst, 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 you know? Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's told visually because he is also seen emotionally for the first time, probably. And then, obviously, she teaches him to embrace life, to live as he must live however that must be, to be different, to not be one of the crowd, because even in that crowd there's such notice, notable differences. Well, Harold is very passive in his moments with Maud. It's mostly Maud that's talking, that's showing, that's teaching. Their trips together are Maud's inspirations. Let's go do this. Let's hang out here. When Harold finally opens up in that scene that you described about him you know, telling Maud about the first time that he died, which was at school in the laboratory. He was playing around with chemicals. There was an explosion. He was presumed dead. Actually, he just walked out with a couple of scratches and bruises and went up to bed and then watches his mum get told by the two cops who show up at the door later that evening that he's been killed. And he describes her putting a hand to her forehead and passing out in their arms. And that he decided in that moment that he preferred being dead. I understand a lot of people enjoy being dead, but they're not dead, really. They're just backing away from life. Reach out, take a chance, get hurt even. Play as well as you can. Go, team, go! Give me an L, give me an L. Give me a V, give me an E, L-I-V-E, live. Otherwise, you got nothing to talk about in the locker room. 
I think Harold is so horrified by his mother's reaction because it is fake and it is socially expected of her to have a reaction like that. I think in that moment he understands that the oppression of oneself into an expected modicum of behavior makes our responses inauthentic. It changes our behavior. It turns us into robots. You know, it robs us of our ability to respond authentically. And we become obsessed with presentation and we become slaves to the opinions of others and lose our ability to express ourselves without inhibitions. And I think the world and the people in the world just seem hopelessly awful to Harold in that moment. He doesn't want to live anymore. And so the mock suicides are kind of flirtations with an escape hatch. I think there are also opportunities for his mother to correct her mistake, which she can't because she doesn't know how because she's too affected, she's too ingrained. She's never given it that much thought. A lot of people don't. A lot of people behave as expected and never actually challenge themselves. And um, uh, just the other questions that his mother answers in that uh, questionnaire, uh, she answers them not from his perspective at all. It's just a very clear demonstration that she doesn't understand him and in general, the greater youth population and how they are misunderstood, the things that they believe in are different from the things that their parents and their grandparents believed in. Yeah, and there's a scene um, early on when they're having dinner. I don't know if it's for Harold's birthday or not. I can't remember. But um, she talks about his father and that his father was, like, found swimming naked down the Seine. And that made me think, oh, maybe it was really hard for Harold to lose his dad because it sounds like his dad had the same sense of theatrics and the absurd and maybe lived unconventionally. And then of course the father, we don't even know if he died or what happened to him, but presumably he's gone. And um, Harold's stuck with this awful shrew of a mother who just is only concerned with appearances. Is that the um, dinner scene where she asks uh, something's wrong with Harold and he says, my throat hurts. <laughs> yeah Such a good line goes, after oh. he's tried hanging himself <laughs> And she's like, well eat your beets And then he just starts to pray Like manically eat these beets yeah, Such eat a strange film go right up to bed, that'll make you feel all better <laughs> Yes <laughs> Gotta get rid of all of your issues with life And living and All of my expectations Sure I'm picking up on vices <laughs> Vice Virtue. It's best not to be too moral. You cheat yourself out of too much life. Aim above morality. If you apply that to life, then you're bound to live it fully. Shall we talk a little bit about Ruth Gordon and Maud? I think she's kind of the person who we all aspire to be. Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely to be Maud? It would be lovely to be Maud. You could argue that Maud is almost too good to be true. She's like an attractive idea more than she is a human being. But I think she's made into a human being by Ruth Gordon because Ruth Gordon is such a naturalistic actress. Ruth Gordon is the kind of actress where I imagine sometimes people would get confused in a scene about whether or not she's still in character or if she's just talking to them. Yeah. She throws away lines. She's just, oh, 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 oh. She, and she did the same thing in Rosemary's Baby. I know what you mean as an actress, but as you said before, apparently she was difficult to penetrate personally on set and uh, I think she said that the tip to being a good actor is show up and learn your fucking lines and she said that to Bud Court and then she walked away which from someone who's won an Oscar in the last three years to a 20 year old actor is gonna be pretty scary absolutely but I really like I liked reading about the evolution of their friendship and that ultimately they became really dear friends to one another yeah, it, it um, saddened me to read that they weren't during filming because they are such a natural couple on screen and there is so much charisma between them, even though they are so different and Maud is almost flighty throughout the entire film. She does have these special moments where she is kind of brought back to reality by Harold because Harold is, if anything, <laughs> a little more grounded in reality than Maud. Yeah. Oh, I would say so. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a woman who just gets into whatever car happens to be there to get home. There is some thought to the idea that Maud is based on some of the principles of 
theosophy. It's um, a belief system. It's a movement found by a Russian-German writer and spiritualist named Helena Blavatsky. It's actually a religion, so it's like almost like a cult. There's a lot of belief systems they have that you could um, say, oh yeah, that correlates with Maud. But I don't think that you need to apply any kind of particular philosophical teaching to Maud. I think she's a blend of a lot of different ideas that we've you know heard over over many years, over the last hundred years. One thing I I really admire about Maud is that she loves people and she presumes that all of these strangers meet her well and it makes some of the interactions so charming, particularly the interaction with the cop. License lady? I don't have one. I don't believe in them. How long have you been driving, lady? About uh, 45 minutes, wouldn't you say, Harold? We were hoping to start sooner, but you see, it's rather hard to find a truck. Is your truck? Uh, oh no, I just took it. Uh, yes, I have to pump my truck. Well, it's not mine really, but we would like to get it into soil as soon as possible. Yeah, let me get this straight, lady. All right, then, and we'll be off. Nice chatting. I love how he asks her, uh, how long have you been driving? And she says, oh, 45 minutes. And I'm pretty sure he means, you know, 45 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love when she says to him, don't be officious. You're not yourself when you're officious. <laughs> One of my favourite things about that scene is that she has said in the movie, she acts as though nothing belongs to anybody. She's, you know, not to be beholden to your possessions. And she even describes her own things as incidental, but not integral. And yet she is caring enough that when she's pulled over by the police officer and asked to leave the car and he gets into the car to kind of look around, she urges Harold to retrieve her neighbor's shovel before they steal the police officer's motorbike so that she can return it because it's been loaned to her. So it's important in that respect that that particular possession gets back to where it was possessed. She doesn't have the same consideration for all of these people's cars she's stealing. Well, no, <laughs> and I guess you could make the argument that she only cares about the people that she knows. Yeah, there's lots of hypocrisies to Maud. But then she goes to the funerals of people that she doesn't know. No, and she goes to strangers' funerals for the reverse reason that Harold does. Harold goes to explore and understand death, and she goes to honour and um, celebrate life and the cycle of life. So they're going for, for inverse reasons. The second funeral they're both at, the one that's indoors, where she moves into the seat behind him, it's really great how they set up, as you say, they as you said to me privately, they set up the rest of the movie. She says, so I heard that he was 80. And then she says, well, I mean, 75 is too early, but at 85, you're just marking time. You may as well look over the horizon. And that's ultimately what happens in the movie. On the surface, Maud would be the last person in the world to commit suicide. How do you interpret that decision? I think probably in Maud's lifetime she's seen, and this goes without saying the film has not said this at all, but she's seen people past that age of 80 and start their mental decline. And Maud doesn't want to be a burden to anybody. She doesn't want to be a burden to a system. And she doesn't want to be a part of life if she's not living. And I think that's said pretty explicitly throughout the movie that she doesn't want to be a part of life if she's not living. Her goal is not just to buy time until she passes away. Her goal is to live when she's alive. And she decides when that time is over. uh, When she's still vital enough and she still has the mental faculty to make that decision. And I think she um, she also, regardless of how this makes Harold feel immediately and in the moment, her passing away and giving up a relationship with Harold, that would make her happy for a few more years and make Harold happy for a few more years, but w- which would ultimately lead to that same kind of feeling of loss for Harold, is um, a little bit righteous in some ways because she's gifting Harold her knowledge, her ideas, her philosophy, and she's allowing Harold to then go. And as she said in her final line in the movie, I believe, is... Don't die, Maud, for Christ's sake. Harold, don't upset yourself so. I love you. 
I love you. Oh, hell. Love. Go and love some more. Go love some more. Mm. It's a beautiful parting gift. Mm. It is. Trouble, oh, trouble set me free. I have seen your face and it's too much, too much for me. The marketing for this movie I thought was really terrible. Hal Ashby had a problem with the marketing as well, uh, the, particularly the trailer and the movie posters. They, the trailer itself showed a, a series of unconnected scenes and cut them in a very bizarre way, which didn't really tell any of the philosophy of the film, which is the most important thing that you take away from this film. Some of the posters were really quite lackluster. One of them was all text. And the movie title, Ruth Gordon and Bud Court's names were in large pink and purple type and the rest of the credits were in black and the whole thing was on a white background so there was no imagery at all, which is very unremarkable. And a few others kind of really rolled with the sexual revolution imagery with flowery type faces and rainbow colours. And while I think this film is, is difficult to market, which is unfortunate, I suppose that's a reason... The marketing is a reason that film didn't find the audience and the audience that it did find at the time was the wrong one. Well, studios don't make these kinds of movies. They don't make movies this risky. I think Paramount was scared of the film. But what baffles me most of all is the lack of critical praise that it received when it was released. I mean, was this film really too radical? And do these reviewers really believe that it was juvenile in its humour and it didn't have anything else to say? Or were critics just simply sick of what they considered to be message movies at this time? I mean, there'd probably been about three or four years worth of them at this time. I wonder if that had something to do with it. Possibly. But I mean, Harold and Moore doesn't hammer blow its message. No, it doesn't. I, I feel like films that are gentle do tend to be the ones that fail to make waves at the time of their release because they're, they're in amongst so many louder movies and, and Harold and Moore was certainly in 1971 in amongst some loud movies. Luckily, when they find the right audience, they do manage to get reassessed after some years. I guess part of this is due to the further success of the creative team, because Harold and Moore definitely had that in its favour as Hal Ashby went on to make, as we've said, some classics throughout the rest of the decade. Part of it is also because these films are, or they become, a snapshot of a period or an emotion that may have since passed, and Harold and Maud was also that. So after the Vietnam War ended with the fall of Saigon in 1975, and some time had passed since America's involvement, we began to get the art that was inspired by that time in history, and we began to become more accepting of the art that was made during that time in history. I, I feel like it's a little more comfortable once there's um, some distance between the subject matter and the reality. I would be remiss in my duty if I did not tell you that the idea of intercourse, the fact of your firm young body co-mingling with the Withered flesh, sagging breasts, and flabby buttocks makes me want to vomit. Harold and Maud opened in theatres on December 20th, 1971, and turned a profit in 1983. That should tell you just about everything on how it was received. It's actually very difficult to find accurate box office data for Harold and Maud, and I assume that's because it just wasn't very successful at the time. It didn't break the top 10 at the box office in the United States in any single week during its release. 
In LA, during the first week of release, it barely made a dent with $8,500, paling in comparison to the $210,000 that Disney's Lady and the Tramp brought in. Out of the 97 cinema releases in 1971 that grossed at least $1 million, it ranked in position number 91, so at least it wasn't dead last. On a production budget of about $1.2 million, it made back $1.1 million domestically. The highest grossing film of the year was Norman Jewison's adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof with $34 million. And obviously, Hal Ashby and Norman Jewison had some history. I guess one of the saving graces for Harold and Maud and its participants, at least financially, was that it didn't cost too much, primarily because the majority of the individuals involved were unproven assets. Only Ruth Gordon had real notoriety as the winner of the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1968 for Rosemary's Baby. Hal Ashby's reputation wouldn't garner traction for a few more years. And it wasn't thanks to Harold and Maud, which was almost unanimously ridiculed by critics. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times famously panned the film, and seems to have never revisited it during his living years. Harold is death, Maud life, and they manage to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. The visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum, and all the movie lacks is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Vincent Canby of the New York Times may have hated it even more. If the idea of the movie strikes you as immensely comic, you might well want to miss Hal Ashby's Harold Award, a comedy that pretends to be thoroughly in favour of life but is quite as much about death as it appears to be. Bud Court and Ruth Gordon are mismatched visually. Mr. Court's baby face and teenage build look grotesque alongside Miss Gordon's tiny weazened frame. As performers, they are both so aggressive, so creepy and off-putting that they are obviously made for each other, a point the movie refuses to recognise with a twist ending that betrays its life-affirming pretensions. Variety, who refused to put names to their reviews in the fear that podcasts would shame them 50 years later, wrote, Harold and Maud has all the fun and gaiety of a burning orphanage. Director Hal Ashby's second feature is marked by a few good gags, but marred by a preponderance of sophomoric, overdone and mocking humour. All three of these reviews had major problems with the simulated suicides performed by Harold, but not one of them recognised that those actions represented a yearning on the character's behalf. They all looked at it on a surface level, not willing to explore further or to dig deeper, taking the bleak humour merely as sight gags. At least the New York Times, unlike Ebert, revisited the movie. In 1974, they wrote an article about the film's reception in Minneapolis, where it had played at a single theatre for 114 consecutive weeks and grossed half a million dollars due to the audiences it was pulling. It was returning to New York due to this singular success, with a headline on the ad copy that read, What do they know in the Midwest that we don't know in New York? The writer of that article, Algene Hametz, related a story told to him by a 37-year-old friend at the time. Quote, Harold and Maud was the bottom half of a double bill. We were going to see some classic we had been looking forward to, but Harold and Maud came on first. When it was over, we left the theatre without staying for the film we had come to see. Harold and Maud was a gem, deliciously funny, stretching our limits of acceptance. We couldn't let anything else touch it. Spoiler. End quote. I guess you either got it or you didn't. Against the grain, both Bud Court and Ruth Gordon were nominated in the supporting acting categories of the comedy or musical films at the Golden Globes, however neither took home the award and the film garnered no other notable recognition. Of course, the film has developed a cult following since those rough first few years. It is now regarded as a classic, having been reassessed over the years, maybe due to Ashby's later success. In 1997, it was inducted in the Library of Congress National Film Registry and has appeared on AFI lists including 45th Best Comedy, 69th Best Romance Film and later the 9th Best Romantic Comedy and the 89th Most Inspiring Movie. All right, well, let's do the quiz and I have made my questions quite hard because last time you were merciless in the questions you asked me. Okay. One of your questions was, what did an actress in a TV movie version of the movie we're podcasting about say about her production? Okay. That is ridiculous. I'll I'll, I'll pick the hard questions then. I'll go first. What did Hal Ashby eat for breakfast on the first day of shooting? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't. He skipped it and just had a toke. God damn it. 
after which scene did the entire crew stop to applaud? The scene where Harold breaks down with Maud. That's right. That was a guess. That was a good guess. And it turned out that the cinematographer had actually run out of film and they had to shoot it again. Did they? Yeah. (laughs) That's sad. True or false, when the announcement was made of the TV series Maud, which ultimately starred B. Arthur, fans of the movie lobbied the show's producers to instead cast Ruth Gordon in the lead role. True. Luke, I so made that up. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was going to be an easy one. (laughs) Well, I thought it was possible. It was the right time. (laughs) Harold and Maud was referenced in The Golden Girls. Name the reference. No, I I don't know. It's in the last season. Blanche has, you know, she's put on this moonlight madness party because full moon is the most romantic night of the, you know, ever. For some reason, all the men are really randy and everyone, they're all hitting on everybody except Blanche in that episode. And Sophia says, I haven't been hit on like this since I stopped hanging out at the midnight show of Harold and Maud. <laughs> That's such a good quote. <laughs> Colin Higgins had two more films planned in the Harold and Maud universe. What were they? Um, I have no idea. So one was called Harold's Story, and that was uh, it was going to star Bud Court and be about just a continuation of Harold and Maud, so after Maud's death. And the other was called Grover and Maud, which was going to be a prequel, and that was going to have Maud learning how to steal cars from Grover Muldoon, the character who Richard Pryor portrayed in Higgins' 1976 film Silver Streak. Oh, that's cool. I haven't seen Silver Street. No, neither have I. What image was removed from Harold and Maud after the MPAA threatened to slap the film with an R rating? I assume it would have been uh, during that sex scene, which I think was cut down quite a bit. There was a scene of them kissing naked in bed, and that was removed by Paramount executives before the film even went to the MPAA. Right. But the MPAA, uh, actually, it was in the scene that you love about with the seagulls. You know, they're in the mud flats, and there was a sign in that that was bearing the words, fuck war. And um, the film hadn't used any profanity, so they had to remove it. True or false? Another one, Luke. 50-50, okay? Vivian Pickles made 17 films, but Harold and Maud was the only one made in America. True. Yes. That is true. Hallelujah. <laughs> so I think we both got one. So do you have any other ones? Uh yes. How many years after Harold and Maud did it take for another of Ruth Gordon's films to be released into a cinema? Oh, I don't know. Five? Five years. Oh my god. <laughs> so the next film that she had released into the cinema was The Big Bus in nineteen seventy six, which was a farce, just um lampooning disaster films. Ah, uh, in which scene does producer Charles B. Mulverhill make a cameo in Harold and Maud? Um, not entirely sure. So I'm going to guess the scene, maybe he's one of the people playing an instrument when the band walks down the street. No, he sells the hearse to Harold in that outdoor car wreckers scene. Ah, okay. And Hal Ashby's scene? Hal Ashby's scene is where they're um, at the carnival um, playing that gun game and he's standing between them you know who i thought that was who donald sutherland oh really <laughs> it looks so much like donald sutherland in a wig and fake facial hair yeah he but looks that's really actually how lashby's hair yes yeah he's a major hippie you know that parade that walks past that funeral that was how ashby how ashby's decision because it happened to him at his father's funeral they all solemnly walked out of this church and there was this marching band walking past and he just thought it was really funny, so he put it in the movie. Okay, so final thoughts. I I know that Harold and Maud has, is a flawed film. I think it was made by very young people. It's very audacious. There are maybe some scenes that go a little too far or a little too absurd, but some movies are so touching that their flaws are outshone by how tenderly they reflect their subject. Even though intellectually, I know it's probably not a five-star movie, it would just be disingenuous of me to go any lower. So that's my rating, five stars. Yeah, look, I I see where you're coming from, and I knew you were going to give it five stars because it is a film that spoke very personally to you. I'm giving it four and a half, obviously. I love Harold and Maud. I don't connect with it quite as much as you do. 
and I do connect with the graduate more and I just think for me personally the graduate is uh, a better example of these themes in this time uh, or at least an example that kind of speaks to me a little bit closer to my sensibilities. All right well I'm dying to know what our next film is so why don't you sign us off? Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again for this latest episode of Celluloid Junkies. We'll be back soon, very soon, with a deep dive into one of the most horrific true stories ever committed to film. Toby Hooper's low-budget 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ooh, that is very exciting. So we're going to be doing our second Toby Hooper movie. I know, who would have thought that of all of the directors we've profiled on this podcast, Toby Hooper would get two. <laughs> what on earth made you pick that? You just wanted to rewatch it? I've just had a yearning to do a kind of low-budget horror. And to be honest, the two finalists were The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, I'm glad you picked Texas. I decided to go for Texas Chainsaw Massacre just because it is more iconic. And I think yep. you would probably, in The Hills Have Eyes, you would talk a lot about Texas Chainsaw Massacre anyway. And I would rather have, if we ever get around to Hills Have Eyes, I would rather have already done an episode on Texas Chainsaw. Alrighty, well, I'll check you then. No worries. See you next month. Bring tea for the tiller man, steak for the sun, wine for the woman who made the rain come. Seagulls sing your hearts away. While sinners sin, the children play. Oh Lord, how they play!